0: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
1: from the nation's capital this is the fly fishing consultant podcast with your host rob Snowett.
2: 148th episode of the Fly Fishing Consultant podcast. This is part one of Stronghold featuring author Tucker Malarkey. Quick note we lost Dr. Jones the night before this was recorded, so I was a bit of a mess, sat back, and let Tucker do most of the talking. Dr. Jones would have been 15 in January. He had a long life full of walking around in bow ties and barking at pretty much everybody and everything he encountered. It's very quiet in the house, and I have no one to talk to during the days when I'm home alone not on the water. In this episode, Tucker and I will discuss her cousin Guido and when and why she decided to write a book about his exceptional life, One Man's Quest to Save the World's Wild Salmon. Please read the book, hopefully before this and the next episode. If you haven't read the book, in this episode, you'll learn all about salmon and their relationship to the environment. You'll learn about Tucker's family steelhead fishing on the Deschutes River. You're going to hear some crazy taming stories as well. This is the first podcast I can think of that's been interrupted by a windstorm. The Wi-Fi on Tucker's end cut out halfway through, but I'm sure producer Jason is going to make it absolutely professional sounding. So let's talk to Tucker. We've got Tucker Malarkey with us today. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great. Thanks, Rob.
2: And where are we checking in with you today?
3: I am in Berkeley, California.
2: Fantastic. And you said it's pretty windy there. Is it the Santa Ana's?
3: It's, you know... Maybe a bit, although we don't get those so much up north. But yeah, it's honestly it's crazy global warming weather, and we now have uh, PG&E, you know, shutting off electricity to avoid fires. So things have been a little, little crazy out here.
2: Yeah, a guy died last week when his oxygen machine
3: oh, gosh, suddenly wow. turned
2: off because it oh. was plugged in, oh, right. no warning.
3: Right. right, exactly. Yeah, crazy times.
2: Yeah. And for those listening who haven't taking a look at your picture on the back of the book. Do you have a celebrity you most resemble? A (laughs) doppelganger, possibly?
3: I don't know. Who are you thinking?
2: (laughs) I don't know. You don't have a big online presence. There's only a couple of pictures of you.
3: I know. I know. I don't. I'm a writer.
2: (laughs) Right. You're too busy writing to be online.
3: I know. I mean, I have been told various, various things, but but who knows? Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, How long ago were you out here in the D.C. area?
3: So I I went to Georgetown University, and then I stayed in Washington um, to work at the Post, Washington Post, for about five years, and kind of worked my way up from, you know, just an entry-level job, you know, to the foreign desk, to, you know, and and I was, in those days, they kind of trained you to do everything when you were a youngster, and so, you know, I learned how to edit and write, and then I co-wrote a a book with a columnist there and called sleepwalking through history. And that was about the Reagan years and privatization and deregulation and another crazy political time. Absolutely. And from there I, I I decided I need to lose um, civilization for a while. And I I went to Africa and I was going to go just for a few months, but I stayed for over two years (laughs) one of them living off uh, the coast of Kenya on an island that uh, had no cars, barely electricity, and um, it was just heaven. And that's and that's where I decided to write fiction, which is a decision nobody jumps up and down in excitement about. Um, and maybe I could have only made that decision being so far away, uh, but I applied to... MFA programs from, from over in South Africa, actually. I was there at that point. And then, and then went on to the writer's workshop in Iowa and, and then have been writing, editing and teaching since then. And primarily I'm a novelist. My, my cousin's crazy tale, um, inspired me to return to nonfiction.
2: It almost reads when I start reading the book. I mean, I, knew of guido through linkedin cook's book upstream mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it was reading as if this was a completely fabricated person with this amazing ability and persona <laughs> and then you flip through and you're like wait there's pictures of him when he was a kid are these real pictures or did she just scan the internet to find pictures to go with the story you're like no this is an actual person
3: i know i know honestly it's i mean even as a kid i knew that guido was unusual you know we had like a pack of cousins that grew up summering in our in oregon at our fishing cabins on the deschutes river in a pretty wild um part of the river of all of our cousins well he was the oldest but also he was just different and different in that he was wild um and while we lived kind of wild when we were on that river, he was really wild and plugged into natural systems and had absolutely no interest in humans, really, and made very few concessions to be with people or to speak to them. So I I thought he was wonderful because, you know, as kids, you're sort of very aware of adults and others judgments and this and that and I was very sensitive and I loved just checking out and following him around as he pursued snakes and lizards and you know it was like being with a shaman I I mean that's the only way I can describe it his sensory awareness of the world and you know he told me at one point that he saw things from like 3,000 feet above you know where he could kind of see the stories in the land and where he he understood enough about reptiles it was all about herps, herpetology in the beginning but he understood enough about them to know where to find them and then he had just this way of tuning in and being super quiet and then just grabbing a grabbing a snake or a lizard and just poisonous it didn't matter and um That fascination um, transferred to fish when he discovered fly fishing and the fish in our river, and they were even more mysterious and intriguing to him, and he devoted all of his time and attention to studying them. And, you know, it's starting on this one river in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, he kind of spread out to other rivers as he got older and, and his focus changed from the trout and steelhead in our river to Pacific salmon.
2: Do you feel that he, he (laughs) was more animal like than person like almost in the way that trouble communicating with people, but he could be with the animals and completely at peace.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And he didn't, you know, he was born into sort of a well-to-do, well-connected family um, that were always trying to, you know, force him to go to tennis camp and, and to mind his manners and this and that. And he just paid no attention at all. And it wasn't even an issue for him. It was just like he looked at his mother and his father and just kind of shook his head and was like, nope, I'm off, you know. And when he was little, he ran away continually, um, just didn't abide by the same laws and rules, didn't acknowledge them. And so had all kinds of scrapes with authority and also, um, something that distinguished him a bit was uh, he was dyslexic, um, badly dyslexic, which was discovered, gosh, in fourth grade. And you know, obviously, this didn't do much for his interest in school, and uh, they didn't have as many you know accommodations then as they as they do now. Um, but when they discovered this, uh, he started getting tutored after school and I think, you know, he was already isolated and this increased his sense of isolation from other kids who already thought he was weird, you know? Yeah. What he did have though, was this visual sense. Um, He had a teacher, uh, I think it was in kindergarten. This is in the book who, who uh, gave the kids an exercise to, to, kind of draw what they imagine the insides of a human being to be and and Guido, you know, most kids had like scribbles of, you know, tummies and this and that. And Guido's had like intestines and organs and it was like kind of rudiment rudimentary but correct anatomy and the teacher was just shocked um, because he had this understanding of a biological system and cre- clearly he must have studied it a photo a photo of it or a drawing of it. And so a lot of his understanding came through drawings and diagrams and you know the, <laughs> his mother had a stroke of genius when she bought him, Dittmar's Guide to North American Reptiles, and I think this was also in fourth grade, and it was the first book he really wanted to read. And he just bore into it and forced those letters to behave and in some ways overcame a a large aspect of his dyslexia, Um, which shows something about his will and determination, um, which is... (laughs) And something else that, that made him unusual, and, and I remember this as, as a girl, was that he was, he had this kind of non judgmental openness in his sort of hunting sphere. He was really, he always wanted to catch the rarest, biggest, um, most beautiful creatures, but he was not deterred by failure. In fact, he he was challenged by it, and this also translated to fish. So when he started to fly fish and, you know, like with everything, he wanted to learn to do it his way, learned how to, you know, tie his own flies and basically kind of muddle through the whole excruciating process of learning about that sport on his own, which sort of made his knowledge very um, hard-won and, and, and personal, like it became part of his, his education. And, and what didn't work was just as valuable information to him um, as what did work. He would try things, and then, you know, he would try a fly, he would try a cast, he would try a place in the river, and you know this as a fisherman, this is what all fishermen do, and if it doesn't work, you try something else. But the whole process was fascinating to him. The challenges continued to grow. Like he just kind of made his way up that fishing ladder from rainbow trout to steelhead to brown trout, to inevitably Chinook, and then the whole spectrum of Chinook, you know, fall Chinook, spring Chinook, and different rivers and micro-populations of Chinook, um, and always wanting to go for the toughest, strongest fish, and for a long time, no one was trying to catch Chinook, especially like a spring Chinook, coming in hard and fast from the ocean on a fly, because You know, they are not feeding, they're hell-bent on reaching their spawning grounds. And, um, you know, it took him, I think, five years to crack that code to figure out, you know, just what would make a Chinook stop and consider his fly. And for five years, he would go into down into the rivers of the Tillamook Basin, and sit there in his pram, kind of across the bay from these gear fishermen that have these, you know, big glinting treble hooks, and were, you know, and these hooks, the, these hooks are kind of irritants and, and intrusive and sort of artless, right? Um, sorry for all you fishermen who are gear fishermen, because I'm, there's absolutely a place for you. In this context, I think that Guido felt like it wasn't a fair fight, you know, like fly fishing somehow represented meeting the fish on its own territory and giving it a fair chance and respecting it in that you really learned as much as you possibly could before you even offered it something. It was a relationship almost between you and the fish, not not this kind of extraction from the river. But anyway, these... Gear fishermen would watch him year after year and sort of joke and laugh and be like, God, what a fool, until he figured it out. And then he, you know, started pulling huge fish out of there on on his barbless hook and um, their jaws dropped, (laughs) of course. Anyway, so that's just to say his particular character and disposition was perfectly suited to fly fishing. You know, the attention to detail, the bottomless patience, the, the love of learning. Um, and, of course, at the base of it all, just this absolute hunger to be in the river, to be in the wild, to be amongst, you know, the trees and the creatures and standing in that current. And that's what he lived for. Yeah.
2: And lives for, because... He's still around. And, we're, we're almost talking about him all in the past here.
3: I know this is. This is you're right. That's what he lives for. He, uh, and, uh, and you'll speak with him soon. He's very much alive and very much the same. Although, you know, what changed for him was that you know he. It's funny. He went to high school uh, in Arizona, uh, Verde Valley, um, and he went there primarily primarily to hunt the uh, mountain king snake. And his long pursuits of this snake resulted in, you know, very, very minimal class participation. And in the end, no college diploma, which he just kind of shrugged off because he decided to go search for big brown trout and the upper Deschutes River. Um, But anyway, it was when the big kind of turning point in his life that I saw was when the, uh, in like 1990, when the first analysis of Pacific salmon populations was done and, and showed just alarming results. Uh, di- yeah, different populations had dropped from thousands to hundreds or from thousands to one, uh, one single fish. And so this was just like red alert for Oregon. Um, and their, Gido, for Guido, it was just a call to battle. He was like, oh my God. And he understood what was going on. I mean, it, it wasn't rocket science. I mean, salmon need basically three things to survive. They need access to their birth rivers. They need cold, clean water, and they need spawning grounds. And, you know, if you dam a river without a fish ladder or if you pollute a river um, with, you know, by agriculture or or what have you, um, if you clear cut a river and the water warms up, you know, trees are a really integral part of any any healthy uh, salmon river, but probably any healthy river because they provide shade and all kinds of structure. For the fish, you know, when the trees fall or branches fall, those create kind of an underwater uh, neighborhood for for fish to hold, to spawn, to feed, um, to grow. Uh, So, just this stuff wasn't really known. Why it wasn't widely known at the time, and so, um, and by the time what Guido found was that by the time A salmon population became endangered the river itself was degraded beyond repair you know um it was you know the endangered species act when it was when it was um enacted for salmon was as guido saw it like the emergency room so Really, all systems have failed at that point. And you've got a patient on life support, which wasn't really a conservation strategy. And so he started to think about the rivers that were still healthy in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know.
0: Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out midwayusa.com.
3: Thought. Look, you know, all this money, you know, billions of dollars would be spent on trying to restore degraded salmon rivers and and into, you know, not great effect. So his strategy started to to develop, you know, and it was um, the stronghold strategy, which was protect the rivers that are healthy. It's a lot cheaper, a lot easier and um, doable. So he kind of became... An activist and you know went back to school and you know I watched him kind of transform from this (laughs) long haired bead wearing hippie you know to kind of a clean cut
2: he became a suit
3: he kind of became a suit And, and for him it was he didn't care it was all about you know and he understood that humans are just like animals it's like you kind of have to fit in. You know, you've got to wear what you need to wear to be um, acknowledged. You've got to do the dance. And um, so he, lear- he learned how to do that. And, and he learned how to deal with human beings by studying them the same way he studied creatures. I mean, he really learned them. And, so, and he learned them so well. And he's so incredibly good with people um and like deeply charming and present and in you know interested and curious like you would never know that he has this you know that really he would rather be anywhere but you know in a suit um no that's not true he just always would rather be in a river
2: (laughs) and why is his name not as well known we've got jane goodall You've got, uh, I think, a Brute, Gildicast with the Ring of You've got the Cousteau's with yeah. Underwater. Yeah. And he's yeah. the voice of the salmon. I think it's a bad analogy. I don't know if you can say it's a bad analogy. He's the Lorax for the, the salmon. <laughs> but he's not a well-known name. Anybody that's yeah. eating salmon these days from the Pacific, wild salmon, basically have him to thank.
3: Oh, that's so nice. I mean, I agree. So part of why I wanted to write this book – um, was to make people fall in love with salmon. And, and I think that fish are harder for the general public to fall in love with, you know, they're, they're cold blooded, they're underwater, they live, you know, underwater, they're, they're kind of mysterious, they show up, you know, in the in the marketplace, but, you know, not a whole lot is known about them. But in fact, they have qualities that are amazing like that we can identify with um i think anyway i mean when i started to learn about them you know and salmon were originally freshwater creatures and it was when the ice caps melted that they sensed a greater food source in the ocean and over you know god knows how many years adapted their physiologies to process salt water um I mean that alone is pretty staggering a staggering thing to do. They basically became like transformers.
2: Salt's a pretty noxious compound for aquatic work any organism.
3: Right? Yeah. And and so they they just like started to you know, I mean the Yeah, exactly. And which is why their eggs which is why they migrate, because the their their those fragile, beautiful, translucent eggs would never survive in the ocean. And so after they kind of take off into the deep, dark Pacific, um, facing all kinds of predators and dangers, I mean, it's a very badass thing to do, really. I mean, these fish are kind of cool. I mean, it's like striking out for the big city, like, Mom, Dad, I'm going to try my luck in New York. I'm going to write a screenplay and go to L.A. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go for those northern waters, and I'm going to get big, and I'm going to have a ton of eggs, and that's like the fish version of, you know, fortune and fame, is like increasing your egg load and your biological kind of output, like more of my my little fish have a chance to survive, so that was the, the driving force for them, um, and they swim as far as, you know, 2,000 miles away. And then it's like, Cinderella, it's like when the the clock strikes midnight, um, when their biological clock goes off and it's time to spawn, they turn around and come all the way back to their birth river, which is like, you know, nobody really gets how they do that. It's beyond, beyond mysterious. I mean, there are theories about navigating by the stars, by that they're magnetically aligned, that they can detect a drop of their home river and, you know, a gazillion cubic tons of salt water. Who knows? But they do, and they make, this is partly why they create this incredible ecosystem, because they come back to where they were born, and after spawning, they, most all species die um, within weeks or days, and So, what happens then is they deliver this nutrient bomb, you know, because their bodies are filled with all those omegas. It's like the superfood of the ocean. And they die en masse, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of fish in the case of a place like Bristol Bay. And all those nutrients go into the ecosystem where everything feeds on them, including baby, their baby fish, you know, baby salmon. But you know, you understand why they're a keystone species because, like, over 150 species rely on them, both, you know, marine species and freshwater species, um, you know, and mammals and uh, rodents and um, frogs and insects and microbes, microbial life in the soil. And the trees themselves, you know, you cut open a thousand-year-old tree in the Pacific Northwest, and you'll find nitrogen isotopes that are unique to marine systems. So even the trees have been built on salmon nutrients. So salmon coming back to their birth rivers is really, really important. You know, this is something that people have understood slowly and in the past decade or two. And most people don't really get it, that there's this huge system and salmon are like these, you know, transporters of of nutrients between the these massive habitats, fresh and saltwater habitats, and that when you dam a river, it's basically bam, you know, you're not getting nutrients into that river. You know, the watch isn't being rewound. And things start to fall apart. That whole ecosystem, which is kind of based on salmon, starts to erode, um, which is what alarmed Guido. And he was like, you know, what's going to happen? This is like one of the most productive ecosystems in the world. And, you know, if salmon stop, like the Atlantic populations had been lost um, many years earlier in Europe and on the east coast of america and believe it or not like rivers from portugal to norway used to be chock-a-block full of salmon i mean imagine like the seine or the rhine or the thames and it was basically ignorance and the industrial revolution where factories were put on rivers because rivers of course just take the waste away so neatly destroyed the salmon habitat and you know they. Europe is just still struggling over. They're still trying to bring their salmon back, but it's 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 incredibly hard. Anyway, Guido saw, wow, if that happened to Pacific salmon, the Northern Hemisphere would lose one of one of its most vital, important creatures, and and that that put that's been the gas in his tank, and it's motivated him to do incredible things.
2: At one point, did your observations of growing up with him and his story and you being a writer merge that you were going to tell his story? (laughs) That's a good question.
3: I'll tell you exactly the moment we were. So when we, when we go to our cabins on the Deschutes and Guido inherited his, his and I inherited mine and we've, you know, we go back there multiple times a year and there's no, it's so great. There's no cell phone. Um, there's no cell reception. There's no Wi-Fi. And you take a boat across a river, and it's just very remote. You're not driving around. There's nobody around. And so you really, like, go deep, you know, with your conversations. And it's just quiet. And, you know, it's the like the joys of being in the river. And whatever that river is, you're just like all the beeping and the buzzing just stops for a while. And it's like, ah. Oh peace and wind and the trees and the sound of the river and insects and birds. Anyway, we that's where we would get together and catch up on our lives and our stories. And over the years, Guido's stories were becoming more and more kind of like noteworthy if not outlandish. And he, he, he started to get into um, salmon conservation and I listened as his mission kind of grew and he started working in the Russian Far East because if you look at the Pacific Rim, a map of the Pacific Rim, which we don't often see, if you buy Stronghold, you'll see this map right in the beginning of the book because it's so critical to the story. The map is often bisected right down the middle and you see either the west coast of America or the Far East, which has, you know, Japan, the Koreas, China and the Russian Far East, which is a very, you know, wild and um, unpopulated part of the world. And the Sea of Okhotsk and the Bering Sea and all of these like rich, rich northern waters where our fish swim to get big and strong. So our fish swim to Russia, you know, a, a lot of them do. We don't know where they all go, but there have been huge fish Um, caught off the coast of Kamchatka, um, from like the Snake River. So there's definitely an exchange there. And really, the whole arc from Northern California, Oregon, Washington State, British Columbia, Alaska, over to Kamchatka and the Russian Far East and Japan is one huge ecosystem, one big salmon ecosystem. So... Anyway, I, I was a Soviet studies minor, and I had studied in Russia and knew something about Russians. And um, when Gita started working over there, I, I started paying attention and asking questions like, wow, how are you doing conservation in in Russia? You know, it's, it's, it's a very different country to ours um, with different values, and they also are massive. You know, they've got so much land that... Conservation isn't really something they practice or even think about because the Russian phrase is 11 time zones from Moscow. It's just huge. And so, yeah, I mean, they're not running out of things. Guido saw that when the Soviet Union fell apart. In the early 90s, he he saw, and this is what happened, all of a sudden, everything was for sale. Development in this area uh, around Kamchatka just ramped up because, like Alaska, it's not dissimilar to Alaska. There's lots of natural resources. There's oil, there's natural gas, there's ore, you know, gold and whatnot. There are trees All these things that, if you look to the south, um, to Asia, all of these things have run out and been used up. Um, And really, Russia borders China. I mean, this is not far away. So, when, yeah, so there's enormous pressure to develop this incredible salmon habitat over there where it's home to like a great percentage of the world's. World's Wild Salmon. So anyway, so he had been over there just trying to figure out, you know, how how to get these people to kind of wake up and realize that they could lose their salmon. And that salmon were a resource that were in the long run more valuable than like one of these extractive industries that would come in totally screw up the land like mining you know it's the dirtiest industry in the world and it would just completely pollute you know a huge region and then they you know the mining industry is famous for not cleaning up um, their messes and they use all kinds of poisons to extract uh, the ore I Anyways, mean, it's just it's a pretty awful outcome so his argument were, was that you know the fish really sustain the whole region and 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 they feed people and they feed the habitat and they were worth fighting for. Um, so that was his message and it took a long time for them to get it. But back to the moment that you asked about. <laughs> really rambling here but um, so we were at our place um, on the Deschutes and, and Guido was uh gearing up to go fishing and we're just kind of lounging around and he's like yeah i could see it's like he had a story to tell me and he was kind of a little like i don't know nervous or just unlike him he's like he's like yeah i just got back from moscow where i met with this oligarch oleg Deripaska." and uh oleg Deripaska was not in the news at that point but Guido knew that he's kind of a shady guy. Like he knew, just like an animal knows, you know, of danger. He's like, yeah, I, I met with him just, you know, and I just basically I got a meeting with him through, you know, some other person, and and um, he basically just asked this guy, you know, if if uh, if he would help save, you know, Russia's salmon, and at that point, you you know, I thought, okay. It's time to tell this story because (laughs) what you're doing.
2: (laughs) No one's gonna believe what my cousin is doing.
3: No one's gonna believe it. No one's gonna believe it. He's so fearless. And I was really proud of him and nervous for him, you know. And when he when he's nervous, it's like you know there's a reason to be nervous because he's not very often nervous. He's a fearless guy. But he was getting into like a human habitat that was so Rarified and strange, and you know, very few people would have done what he did, which was just kind of walk right in, knock on the door, and say, Hey, salmon are valuable. You want to help me save them? <laughs> so it was, you know, and Oleg Deripaska didn't end up doing much. He he did, he helped him a little bit get a toehold um, in Moscow. Uh, but Guido's Russia, strategies in Russia were. You know, he he had a few um, that, and and you know, in the end, he's had a lot of success um, in Russia and has um, established a number of protected strongholds over there and millions of acres of incredible river. So he's he's managed to do the impossible, um, in in my estimation. But I thought at that point, gosh, you know, the world is so full of bad news and depressing environmental stories and this is actually a hopeful story and it's an exciting story and I thought I could weave in all these crazy adventures that he's had and honestly in the book there's a lot of crazy adventures but it's not even it's a fraction of (laughs) of what his life has actually been I had to kind of call you know some of it because
2: what were some of the stories that didn't make it in (laughs) <laughs> you got one memorable one one memorable uh, story that didn't make it
3: yeah let me just think here oh god i remember there's just this is there's a lot but the first one that comes to mind is when he was down in south america um down in the cloud forests of um Chiapas, mexico and where he was cutting his teeth as a conservationist you know he uh Gosh, he went into the forest with, he was showing the forest to some potential funders and he was with some Mexican co-workers and some guides and I think they came upon a, okay, I hope I'm going to get this species right, a massive iguana, being an iguana, but big as a person, you know, massive, right? Yeah, I think it was iguana. And um, anyway, in Mexico, um, iguanas are food and they're eaten. And Guido knew this because he'd been living down there. And he looked at like the Mexicans next to them who saw the iguana and they were about they were about to run for the iguana to basically kill it. And and Guido sprinted, you know, to, to beat them and he caught the iguana, tied it up um, with a rope, um at their campsite and in the night the iguana just marched around and took down all of their tents and still guido insisted on taking it back to like the natural zoo um that he was working at and so they had it in the car where it was just like a wild crazy thing and he's a
2: dragon size at that point
3: yeah oh yeah and he smuggled it into a hotel, kept it in the bathroom, you know, and, and then it escaped and chomped on a pillow and feathers were everywhere. Um, and, and, the, and, and the dragon, uh, the, the, the lizard wouldn't allow, you know, to take the pillow out of its mouth. So he like wrestled with it and took it to the zoo with this like down pillow in its mouth. But anyway, there's, there's just a lot of there's a lot of crazy stories and you, you can ask him too. Um a lot of crazy snake stories as well. I mean, he had at University of Oregon in his dorm room, he had this is in the book though, um, two mountain king snakes, two rattlesnakes and a thirteen foot Burmese reticulated python. Reticulated Burmese python. Yeah. Those were like his friends.
2: In college I had mason jars full of frogs and then a pet pre mantis for a while and my roommates were not cool with that or the (laughs) freezer being full of just dead bugs for entomology i can't imagine (laughs) being in a dorm with snakes i
3: know (laughs) i know and when the spring would come and the rattlers would kind of come out of hibernation and start rattling he would just like crank up his music louder (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: how did you piece together everything so well? Like I said, it, it reads like fiction when you're telling the stories about going down the rivers in Kalchotka and the boats. Was that just Guido sitting back and and telling you?
3: No, that's a good question. So I, I did a ton of reporting for the book and I just didn't want to read, would want it to read like that. You know, I wanted it to read like a great story. Um. so I, I, um, I asked around about all the expeditions, you know, and I, I didn't just ask him. I asked, you know, other people at the Wild Salmon Center and at the camp, like the Krutogorova expedition, for for example, which is a major chapter in the book. Pete Solveril, who was his par- partner at the Wild Salmon Center, said, like, oh, it was the worst trip ever. You know, the steelhead fishing was awful. And Guido was like, no, that trip was really interesting. And so I started looking into it. And I started interviewing, like, the scientists that had been there. And I was like, whoa, there's a story here. So I inter—I did, like, so many interviews for that because they're, they're, everyone had their own version of the story. And it was 20 years earlier. And so Guido told me stories, but I reported around him all the time. To- you know, there's only a few places in the book where it was just Guido's, Guido telling me something. And then, you know, I kind of picked out a narrative for his life which which you know was his life but you know it's almost like we all have this we all our lives are all all of our lives are stories but do we look back and make sense of them and I was looking at his life and I was looking at the themes you know that might possibly be through lines for a book and I I saw a a theme with maps and I saw a, a science theme and some others that I could really structure a book around. And so I just made some choices. And, um, you know, the key was to make the story flow and to never, you know, let the reader off the hook, so to speak. And so that's what I tried for. And for me, the stakes were high because it was like, this is a chance to spread the word. You know, this is a chance to turn people on to the magic of, an intact ecosystem, and you know, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of your whole approach to, you know, bonding to your local river and your stream, because that's, it's so key. I mean, if people, you know, they can hear about rivers, but even better is to establish a relationship with a river, so it becomes this, like, part of your life. And this living organism that, that changes with every week, every day, and is like a portal for you into nature. And so I, I was just, I was hoping to activate people um, to like the miraculous natural systems on our planet, which are kind of in danger. You know, we all know that sucks. But there you have it. And you know, there's just too many stupid people. Who think that they don't matter or don't see them? So I just I felt like an urgency, like there was a race to get this information out there and to paint a super exciting, beautiful picture, so people would stay with it um, until the end and then close the book and say, "I get it," you know. So that was uh, that was my aim, and it was a beast, Rob. It was a beast of a of a. Are you still there? I'm here. Okay, because my electricity electricity just went off again. Um, Yeah, it was harder than I ever imagined it would be. and
0: um... Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to midwayusa.com.
2: Yeah. Is there I, is there you know, action I, you want readers and listeners to take? We don't I don't want them to just read and put the book down. Is there no. something is there a long-term goal with writing the book? Or do you oh, hope sure. something turns okay. out from it besides just educating people? And
3: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that people, a lot of people have read the book and, and become, you know, interested in, you know, what can they do, um, what they can do. And certainly, like Guido will talk to you about this shortly, but, you know, there's this big campaign up in Bristol Bay Um fighting the pebble mine, which would destroy, like, the second biggest stronghold, uh, salmon stronghold in the world. You know, I think two years ago, Pebble Bay saw 60 million sockeye salmon come in to its rivers and lakes. So it is a really intense, beautiful, powerful ecosystem, and these idiots are trying to... um, dig a mine at the headwaters of, you know, the, the primary salmon rivers, and it would destroy the whole ecosystem, of course. And this was almost, you know, almost destroyed under Obama, um, you know, the whole thing. Uh, everyone knew it was a terrible idea. and um, But and under Trump, of course, like in his first weeks of office, it was greenlighted. So it's back on track. And I'll let Gita will talk more about that. But... You know, the problem with the fossil fuel industry is that they just have bottomless pockets and they can outweigh and outspend conservationists. So it's like you just have to fight a different war. You have to fight a smart strategic war. Um, But, you know, they can always use contributions for sure. And the Wild Salmon Center, and they've got a fantastic website and you can read all about it with gorgeous pictures and, you know characters and you can really kind of see how amazing their work has been. So that's one thing. And then I think, you know, Gita would agree as you would agree that getting out to your rivers, you know, getting out there, just getting outside and learning about it and learning about like what makes a river healthy and what's hurting it and what might come back to life if they got cleaned up. And you know the rivers in our, on Earth are like it's almost like the veins and capillaries and arteries of a human body. They they are the circulatory system for the, the planet. Even though we've paved over them, they're still you know under that concrete. They're just they are pumping water through through the interior. Um, so it's 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 just kind of cool, you know. It's all and it's all connected. So, um, and a river runs through
2: it. <laughs> exactly. Can I talk about steelhead fishing now? Yeah. What's it like fishing? I, I've never fished out West for real oh, steelhead. Wow. What is the Deschutes like for anglers who've not been there yet?
3: Okay. I, I, I want to, yeah, I feel like this is prime Guido question. Okay. Um,
2: What's it like yeah. fishing with him then? Do you just sit back yeah. and watch?
3: I can talk about that. Um, yeah Guido knows so much about the Deschutes um, He's been watching it for his whole conscious life and so he knows all like the little populations of steelhead and like near our cabins there's a creek that's like a seasonal creek and that creek has its own population of steelhead and those steelheads, it's fascinating because, well, let me just talk about steelhead in general for a minute. For those who don't know, and maybe this is just, maybe I shouldn't be talking about steelhead, but I will anyway. Okay, I don't I just don't want to repeat what everyone might know. But to me, steelhead are fascinating because there's a central mystery to, like, why a rainbow trout goes to the ocean, you know, and becomes a steelhead. I mean, I, I'm, I think a lot of it is food-driven, but who knows, you know? Um, so that's what a steelhead is, a rainbow trout that goes to the ocean. And some ichthyologists would argue that it becomes a salmon. It actually kind of changes um, its specification, and it definitely changes physically. But steelhead aren't like the rest of the salmon species. Like the Pacific salmon species, and there are six of them, they all like that. They all have kind of a life history, which is what describes their behavior. You know, they're born in a certain part of the river, and then they te- take a certain amount of time to mature. And then they head to the ocean, and they'll stay out in the ocean for, say, pink and shum salmon will stay out for two years, pretty much, and then head home. Chinook, four to six years. Um, You know, coho and sockeye, they all have their own kind of specific program. And they eat different food, and they go to different parts of the ocean, and they spawn in different parts of the river. So, But it's all kind of organized. Steelhead just kind of strike out swim out you know sometimes alone sometimes with other steelhead Um, not a lot is known about them but they are fierce fighters and they're beautiful fish and they're mysterious and um, there's they're rare and they're very they're one of the more sensitive species to environmental change because they usually have the farthest to swim so all the species of salmon swim different distances and they, I think this is super cool. They eat enough to get home. So, and that also determines the quality of their flesh um, and their price in the marketplace. So like chum and pink salmon are kind of the low man on the totem pole because they spawn right inside the mouth of the river and um, they're, they're, Flesh starts to kind of deteriorate. All salmon kind of start to die when they come back into the river. Wait, except steelhead. I'll I'll get back to that.
2: So I have a theory about steelhead are the cuckoos of the fishing world. Because they're laying their eggs. The eggs hatch. They eat all the nutrients that the salmon died and left behind. But they're not contributing any of the nutrients themselves.
3: Interesting. Well, they do, because they, but, but the, sa- okay, so steelhead are the one, I mean, we don't know if they're a species of salmon or not, but they, they can go um, multiple times. They can go back out um, to the ocean, um, but they do, I think they do, you should ask Guido, but they do contribute. You don't um, have a hundred
2: thousand yeah. corpses no. just breaking down.
3: No, 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 it's I suppose it's, yeah, I suppose it's opportunistic, um but anyway, so they but they um, like Chinook, tend to spawn at the tops of rivers, and so they have farther to swim, and so the challenges are greater, you know, they have dams, they have human interference and and so they're just and their meat is incredible because of that you know they've packed on more fat because they've had far they have farther to swim it's like gas in your tank so anyway they're special and rare and mysterious um you know they're hard to catch which is why why Guido loves them
2: I love them too I just don't live where they live
3: What do you fish for
2: Carp snakehead striped bass Cool The snakehead are the new ones in the river. You weren't here and they were there. They breathe air. It takes about seven hits to kill one with a baseball bat. What? Yeah, they can live out of water for about a week if they're wet. No. Yeah, they're known as the frankenfish.
3: That's scary. Oh, my
2: God. And apparently, I don't eat fish, but they are the prime table fare. And they grow up five pounds their first year. So they don't have all the heavy metals and toxins that, uh, you know, a catfish the same age would have or the same size.
3: It's like a new species.
2: Yeah. They were a guy dumped them in in 2004 and they're all up and down. They're now someone just found a whole bunch in a pond in Georgia. They've infiltrated. eastern People dump them all over.
3: It's like, oh, my God, that's fascinating it sounds like a really that that's going to make it through the apocalypse
2: yeah and i caught my first one in the tidal basin
3: oh my god so they might maybe they migrate
2: oh they migrate they're like salmon in the springtime they jump over any kind of rocks and obstructions they'll bounce into the drift boat they'll knock into your oars and then you've got people from asia that are familiar with them and know how good they are to eat and they just snag them when they come up to breathe air they can use their gills but they prefer oxygen because it's more pure. And as soon as they come up to breathe, there are guys in these eddies just sitting on rocks for 10 hours a day. And they just snag them with a treble hook and drag them on shore. It's pretty oh crazy to see.
3: You are blowing my mind. Okay. I, I'm, I have to go read about these fish. Snake fish? What are they Sna- called?
2: Northern snakehead, Channa argus. Snake. Snakehead. Ch- Channa day. And they're native to Kamchatka, the Amor River Valley.
3: Oh, okay. Snakehead. That's interesting. Yeah, another, yeah, something that, you know, I mean, I'm sure Guido must, he must know about them, but another, he he kind of discovered a species in the course of of his career over, that thrives over there, um, near the Amur, on the Russian mainland, Siberian Taman, which uh, feature in the book, and they're not, they've got similar kind of wacky qualities, in that they have been known to like launch onto land and eat rodents and ducks and they grow to be, I don't know how big when they start feeding on adult chum and which incre- then they start to grow massive. Yeah, when you and eat they- a
2: chum salmon, that's the size of a, a Labrador dog. almost. <laughs> that's huge.
3: I know they grew up to be a um, hundred pounds and some say 200. And so Guido's, but no, nothing's known about them. And so Guido has been over there in Russia for the past few years, conducting science on these like dinosaur fish. And they are, I went on one of these expeditions with him and it was spooky because these fish can like, you know, turn your rafts over and you don't really want to make them mad.
2: They look at you like sna- when snakeheads come up to breathe they their eye looks at your eye there's an actual consciousness to them almost and it sounded like at one scene in the book the taemen were doing that as well
3: yeah yeah exactly exactly and they yeah one of the fishermen on our expedition who you know is super tough guy and he was really spooked by this fish it kind of you know, something brushed his, his waiter and, and kind of a a riffle and, and he looked down and there was this huge tail just swishing away. And he's like, shit, that's the biggest fish I've ever seen. And then it turns around and stares at him.
2: That kind of made the the hair of my neck prickle up when I was reading that.
3: Totally. And the thing is, these fish have never encountered humans and they're the apex predator so they're fearless. And so there's a certain, like, audacity to their behavior, which is a little kind of like, well, you don't know what they're going to do. So pretty, pretty exciting. And, you know, there's these rivers are just so far away from everything. You know, you take it takes like three days to get over there and there's helicopter rides and I, yeah, yeah.
2: And those then, helicopters are pretty sketchy.
3: They're sketchy.
2: Oh, I had a client where a customer once come into the fly shop I worked at saying while they were refueling one, it just exploded with the crew and all their luggage. And they were just sitting on the tarmac in the middle of nowhere with oh nothing.
3: My oh, my God. Yeah, that's the story you don't want to hear. Because Guido and, and his cohorts, you know, kind of believe in the the sturdiness of these old MI5s, MI, whatever they are, MI, old Soviet helicopters that they Got out and used basically as taxis. And it's the only way to get around in that part of the world and in Kamchatka because it's there's just no there are no roads, no infrastructure. but it is they're huge helicopters. and you know you're at the mercy of these these pilots, which are you know who can be very temperamental too and and also the conditions there. You have to, you can't fly, you know, when there's any kinds of weather or clouds. I mean, Guido, you should ask him about his recent close call um, when he was headed to the Uda River. Uh, Yeah, it took them asking him about his helicopter, his sketchy helicopter ride. Um, And, you know, this is a typical story for him. He is these near-death brushes. And they're just nonchalant,
2: like like, oh, somebody ran a red light on my way to CVS, but he'll talk about a helicopter almost crashing in Siberia. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> Just another work day.
2: <laughs> uh, do you have Thanksgiving dinners with him? It's yeah. Other family yeah. events?
3: Yeah, we do. And we have, um, and then we have, we have a, a week after Christmas where we do, um, that we have a week up at the, uh, up at the with uh, kids and my brother and sister and it's so much fun we play music and hike and fish and and drink wine and it's just it's the best
2: does any of the russian good. vodka follow you guys back from russia believe
3: me yes vodka has taken up a re- residence in our lives and i've become a little bit of a believer too it's it's a very clean alcohol
2: <laughs> do you have a, a brand preference we're um we Russian uh, standard uh, here. That's our, <laughs> my, my in-laws are from Soviet union.
3: Where so. are you? Well, they're, I'm they're
2: out. They were outside Kiev back then. So they won't say they're not Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, so when I go to my in-laws, it's all Russian. There's no American food. There's no English spoken. They've been wow. here since the seventies. Wow. They still do everything the hard way. My wife was making pumpkin bread the other day and she's got a KitchenAid mixer But she still had to mix it in a bowl by hand. I was like, you Russians, (laughs) there are modern conveniences. Please use them.
3: Man, I've never seen a tougher people.
2: My father-in-law will go out and edge the the yard, the sidewalk, with a kitchen knife. I'm like, there's easier ways. You're 80 years old. You don't have to work this hard. It's the old way. And He'll he'll still ride his bike for three or four hours and just go out and around Ohio. Wow. I don't get it. Wow. He, he, they do not quit. You're right.
3: Very impressive.
2: Yeah. Uh, well how about I ask you some of the the non non uh, questions. Is there anything else about the book we didn't cover or Life with Guido? Gosh. Um
3: well, I mean, there's a lot there's so much. I mean, I, I think that the that when when um I decided to Write this book. Of course, he had to be involved, and and he was totally game. You know, his one question was, "Do you think we can reach the soccer moms?" <laughs> so it's been this incredible journey with him, and we've gotten super close. Um, um, but we do have this—we have a understanding of each other. I think that goes back to childhood, which made the process really fun it was not without his challenges but um you know we came out like having had this incredible adventure together and and are continuing to have that adventure um but yeah so no no you're gonna have a great conversation with him you know I I'm just trying to think if there's if, if there's anything else to to tell you and uh feel like i've talked a lot
2: just tell listeners they just got to read the book
3: you guys have to read this book it's a really great read
2: (laughs) my parents cut out the new york times article and my wife picked up the book for me so and and i sat on the back porch and just cranked through it
3: oh my god yes that kind of book that's what i keep hearing um the wall street journal ran an, an article a few weeks ago that was like a total rave which i was super psyched about because that reviewer really got it but yeah it's like You've got this great character and a great life that that carries you through um, learning about all this cool stuff, but you don't really feel like you're learning. Right. I mean, that was my my aim was to make it effortless and interesting, you know, to learn about about this incredible ecosystem and salmon and all of that. So, yeah, please buy Stronghold Yay. and then go Yay. and give it five stars on Amazon. <laughs> awesome.
2: um, all right. So we've got some other questions for you now. All right. Hot dogs. Do you put ketchup or mustard on them?
3: I'm a mustard girl. All right.
2: Favorite Harrison Ford movie?
3: Oh, God. Mm, I'll have to go with Raiders. Nice.
2: If you could go back in time to see a an athlete or a band or both in their prime, who would you go see?
3: Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> so revealing, right? Okay, let me just think a minute. I I think I would see, just for old time's sake, um The Grateful Dead. Nice. <laughs>
2: trying to get my daughter into them. My wife will not let me play. Only studio albums on road trips. Okay. <laughs> that, uh, that should have been part of our, our discussion. We started dating 20 years ago. Is She was never into the jam band scene. Um, <laughs> do you have any irrational phobias? I guess reptiles would have to be crossed off the list a long time ago.
3: Yeah. Um, I do. I don't know if it's irrational, though. I mean, I grew up in earthquakes country. And so I shouldn't be nervous about them, but I am. And it's pretty rational in my part of the world. I'm nervous in my bedroom. I have this big redwood tree and I'm nervous that that tree is going to fall into the house. And like, what am I going to do when that happens? When I start to hear it groan at night and what am I going to do? Am I going to like roll off the bed under the bed, like structurally, where's the best place to be? I'm constantly thinking about Structures in my house when the big one hits and the tree falls on
2: the house. Tree yeah. falling here last two years, except for the last eight weeks, has been exceptionally rainy, and trees falling and branches falling on people is actually a very new fear. Yeah. Around yeah. houses, there are houses here that just get destroyed.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a big thing. Yeah, it's happening out here too. So I don't think it's totally irrational, yeah, but it's fun-
2: the maple Weird. right here, it's half dead outside my window, of my office, that we're going to get taken down this year. Yeah. Sooner than but, better.
3: By maple. Yeah. So it's like half half foliage. Yeah, it's, it's so sad. It's sad to lose a tree, but, you know, they are dangerous.
2: Yeah, Or and if it falls, it's most likely going to go in my neighbor's cars. Yeah. And that's the other worry. I don't want Jim and Bonnie coming over here all upset one day. Yeah, totally. In, her, in her oh, overalls. I
3: thought, I thought of another fear. Oh, yeah, um, being in a being in tunnels and underwater, like on Bart Bay Area Rapid Transit, you know, on our train, like under the bay, that freaks me out.
2: You I've know, really like on the Bart above ground.
3: Yeah, I mean, it just you can't. I can't. People do it every day. I don't do it every day, but when I'm on there, I'm like, okay, what if an earthquake? now and uh, I'm under water
2: that'd be know? like the fictitious movie from Seinfeld Chunnel. <laughs> something bad takes place in the tunnel between France and,
3: and England. no it's like I'm not supposed to be here I mean I, I have that feeling a lot it's one of those things that about modern life that gets normalized um you know same as flying around and airplanes and stuff like that it's like oh it's normal and then you look out and you're like actually you know, this is not normal. <laughs> Hurtling <Yeah>. through space.
2: <laughs> what are y'all giving out for Halloween this year?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I think apple caramel pops. That's my son's favorite. Kit Kats, Twix, and, um, you know, you can't give them any fruit or anything like that. Maybe some Snickers.
2: I like the Snickers.
3: Yeah. Tootsie Rolls still like tipsy rolls. Yeah.
2: Old fashioned but yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite part of Thanksgiving dinner?
3: Oh my god. Um I do love a great bite of juicy turkey with some gravy and and stuffing mashed on top. <clears throat> Yum. And the next bite is a little bit of gravy and cranberry sauce, kind of alternating a little bit. I'm Green gonna, beans, yeah. slivered almonds. Mmm.
2: I can't so wait to Thanksgiving. I'm smoking the turkey this year. It's gonna be awesome.
3: Oh, yum! Yeah. N- another
2: food question: Who's got the best sandwich in Berkeley?
3: Oh my God, best sandwich! Oh my, oh geez. Oh no, I don't know. I don't know. Gee, I'm coming up blank. Right. You know, Southie. I think Southie is like around me. Um, a place called Southie has some pretty good sandwiches.
2: What's the last book you read?
3: Oh, um, good question. I have been plowing through an Italian writer named Alana Alana. Ferrante, um, my
2: how, brilliant friend. How do you spell the first name? Um, it's. So my wife isn't. Elena
3: E L E L E N A Ferrante F E R R A N T E, and uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Italy, and um, yeah, that's been a, a super good, super good read. There's four of these, though, so if you get in prepare for commitment.
2: Okay. Well, Tucker, I think that wraps up my questions. We'll let you get on with your windy day.
3: Thank you, Rob. It's been such a pleasure.
2: Thank you for writing the book. It was, it was really awesome. I'll probably Uh, read it again.
3: Thank you for featuring it and, and for having, having us both on. Um, yeah, it's an honor.
2: And do you have a link to your publisher? or where you yeah, people can pick you up
3: can just google. you can go if you google tucker malarkey um my random house random house should pop up and there's lots of you know re- same as amazon there's lots of reviews and quotes and blurbs posted about the book but you're right i need to make a website i'm bad about that kind of thing well, thank you and so hey much, good but- luck with your with your urban um guiding i think it's awesome and i'm if I'm ever back there, I'll, I'll, I'll look you up and, um, like, I might come do a reading in the DC area. So I'll give you a heads up. That'd
2: be awesome. We can go fish this time of year. It's all the sewage outflow near the airport. That's where we're fishing. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. I'm down. <laughs> all right, Tucker. Thank you so much.
3: Okay. Take right, care. Take
2: care. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: Thank you for joining
1: us for the fly fishing consultant podcast. For more information, Or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throw? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of, It's a Winchester life.
2: Yeah, baby, 6'8 Western.
0: I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.